0: Father, we do thank you for the opportunity tonight, for the health you've given us. We give you blessings for just how you've provided and how you've cared. We ask a special measure of comfort on Mike and his family with the losses that they've experienced, and you are the God of all comfort, and we just turn to you with faithfulness and trust at this point in time. Father, we thank you for how you've revealed your word to us, and we just ask for wisdom and learning how to experience it in our lives and understand it. And uh, we thank you for how you've given this to us. We ask this through our Christ. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our scriptures Jewish and recognizing the roots of our scripture. Um, And it it always comes with some caveats or disclaimers that We are in no way saying our culture is bad and their culture is better. That is not what we're saying at all. We're not saying that how we're reading the scriptures wrong and their way is right. No. What we're trying to say is it is written in a different culture. And we have to understand we are in a cross-cultural environment when we're reading scripture. And that hopefully by understanding some of their culture, we can deepen our roots we can deepen our understanding of what Scripture is telling us. So that's, again, kind of the main goals. We do paint with some broad strokes. The goals of the class tonight are to recognize the differences between our culture and that of the early Hebrew, recognizing or seeing those differences in Scripture and see the beauty of the early Hebrew mindset. Again, some of the caveats, we are painting with broad strokes uh, when we say that... um, they live in an honor shame society. It is not an only honor shame society. It is predominantly, ours is predominantly a guilt. Doesn't mean we don't know what honor or shame is. Doesn't mean we don't know what fear is. We do. It's just predominantly we think more in a guilt innocence way. Um, they are. General principles, not hard, fast rules. We do rely on research of those individuals who've spent years in this field studying anthropology, archeology. span No different than when we go to the university and we uh, take an English class and somebody who's skilled in Shakespeare, learned it in Shakespeare, help us understand Shakespeare more. That's English to English. So um, we we need help sometimes with that. So it's really no different in that. And, You know, there are new finds that help shed new light. Uh, Again, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a tremendous find, and they continue to find fragments and find information, and archaeology continues to unearth uh, documents that help us in our understanding. Donna mentioned Acts 2 a couple times, so I did want to address that. So Acts 2, Peter's sermon here. And as we, we read through Peter's sermon, we say, okay, how did they respond to that? And what I did was I just very quickly tried to highlight some of the major points in there. Again, they would have understood it from an honor-shame perspective. So what you see in yellow are predominantly the honor terms. We have ascribed honor and achieved honor. Ascribed honor is that honor you're born into, your family. Achieved honor is that what you've done, with your life, good deeds. So some of the things we see that, God, that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was probably a little bit of a shame term. Uh, it was not well respected. Remember what does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth. That was, that was a slap. That was a bit of a shame statement. Okay, So that's probably a little bit of a shame there. But Jesus was what? Accredited by God. Um, God raised him from the dead. He's at his right hand. Uh, we see the patriarch David. That's, that's the ascribed honor. David had high honor within Jewish culture. So uh, Peter's tying in David here. Um, again, his descendants to the throne, the resurrection. Again, rising from the dead of the Messiah. Look at what he says, exalted to the right hand. That's huge honor. That's, that's a massive honor that Peter is describing here. Um, and received from the Father. Again, quoting from the psalm, the Lord said to my psalm, sit at my right hand. The right hand, the, the right hand was the place of honor. You're right, my left. Um, and then both Lord and Messiah. The, the blue term, where God uh, did miracles and signs through him, would probably be a little bit of a patronage understanding that Jesus was a broker of God. So again, we kind of see a mixing of terms that within that culture. Again, they're gonna; those concepts are going to flow together, merge together, so that they would have understood that a little bit in the patronage system. The red terms, again, when he's talking to the people, here's the shaming. He says, "You with the help of evil men." So if I associated with someone evil, that was shameful. I should not. Um, bring my reputation down by eating with, say, tax collectors and sinners. Somebody else do that that we know of. That was a shaming of Jesus, saying, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners. You're you're hanging out with the wrong people. That's not honorable. And Jesus says what? Hey, healthy don't need a doctor. I've come to the sick. And we see he won that honor contest. So again, Paul is shaming them by saying, you you associated with wicked people when you did this. And you not only put him to death, you put him to death how? On a cross. The most shameful death you could have. And he says it later on. He says what? God has made known this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, a shaming term. So we see in Acts 2, we see honor throughout the, the Peter sermon. We see him shaming them. And their response was, What shall we do? There was shame involved, but would there have been guilt? Yes, there would have been guilt. Okay, again, we're not saying there is an absence of guilt in their culture, it's just the guilt probably led more to shame than it does in us. Uh, for us, our guilt is, is kind of more internal. There's more external, community-based. So again, just kinda to clarify that just because we say that they feel shame doesn't mean they didn't feel guilt. Just probably a little differently than how we see it. Does that, is that okay with that? Last week, Phil introduced collective versus individualist cultures. We live in an individualistic culture. It is how we have been raised. It's how our culture has developed. Uh, It took individualists coming over, uh, especially coming out west, people who could live on their own. And uh, America is formed on a basis of individual rights. What do we have? We have a bill of rights that grant rights to the individual. Uh, It is okay uh, for us. Now, does that mean we have no knowledge of collectivist culture things? No, we do. We have sports teams. We have um, community events. If you live in a small town, there's a little more of everybody knows what's going on. So we, we do have those awarenesses of those tendencies, but predominantly we view the world as an individual. For us, uh, it is okay to stand out from the crowd. Um, we, you walk down the street and we can see hair of all different colors. We can see dress of all different styles. And that is to bring attention. That kind of, I want to bring attention to myself. And that is acceptable in an individualistic culture. We'll stand up for your rights to do that. Our honor is not community-based. Uh, my honor or shame is more individual-based. So uh, those are most of our, our differences there. We have individual goals. And we, we encourage opinions, even if they challenge the status quo. Uh, it is okay to speak your mind. Okay? And when we feel comfortable with that, that's kind of how we've grown up. Within a collectivist culture, community is primary. Primary. That is, that's the overarching kind of uh, mindset, community. Yeah, exactly. So for us, yeah, we, we, we strive for that individual success. In collectivist, it is the community, and it is most important to support the community. That is the goal. You are not to stand out. It is to fit in. And keeping harmony is very important. Um, Alan Austin, Ken Rivera, and I just spent last week in Guatemala, very much a collectivist culture. Um, All of this applies. And, and we, were, we were within that culture. Uh, we go there, and, and everybody kind of dresses the same. Uh, this time, we were down more the coast in a nice subtropical area with balmy 80, 90 degrees and 80% humidity and monsoons every afternoon. And just lovely. But when you're in the highlands, again, 7,000 feet, 70 degrees, 20% humidity. Um, Up there in Chichicastanango, uh, there's a a local dress. So the ladies all pretty much wear the same uh, weave of of cloth. So you can tell what community you come from simply by how you're dressed. And and there's a, a similarity there. The goal is not to stand out. And so... Uh, that, that can bring difficulties when an organization like Health Talents wants to operate in Guatemala and now operate an individualistic board talking to a collectivist culture. Imagine some of the difficulties there. If we say, hey, what do you need? Well, we need this. Are you sure? Well, maybe not. Why? because I don't want to make waves. I'm a collectivist culture. I'm not gonna give an opinion that might, might make a wave. So it's, it's difficult then to say, oh, okay, well, if you don't need it. Well, really, they did need it. But there was just not the culture to stand up and say, no, I'm gonna put my foot down to this American who's providing all this money and challenge them. So it's very difficult to operate and to, to understand those cultural differences. So it was, yeah, done. Everything that you say here, you're describing the church. Yeah. You're saying from collectivist culture? Yes. Yeah. The church is collective. Yes. Not individual. Correct. I, I would, that's, if, if I were to say, what is the, overarching message of this class, the one that at the end of class I want us to get to and to emphasize, it's that message, that we are a community. And in an individualistic culture, um, we tend towards that. And what I'm hoping with this class is we see that maybe we need to try to swing that pendulum back a little bit and understand we are a community um, and again you look at the uh, we're going to be looking at at purity at kinship at family uh, and, and how is the church described most of the time it's in community terms so thank you and that is that's that's kind of what I'm wanting us to see So in the collectivist culture also we see that there's more of an understanding of of we and not me. And there are passages then in scripture in which a plural you is used that we tend to interpret more me. And I know um, Phil did a nice job last week. And I chose Jeremiah 29 for a specific reason. It's one that we do very much uh, interpret very individualistically. I am in no way wanting to say you cannot have that as a life first, You can't take encouragement from it. I'm no way wanting to do that. I am wanting to caution us that we don't obligate God to a promise that He has not made. And if my life doesn't seem to be going well, I hold God to a promise that, that God didn't make. And at times I'm afraid that we've we've taken that verse, one verse out of a letter that God wrote. I mean, that's how it starts out, right? God says to Jeremiah, write this letter. God's dictating a letter for Jeremiah to the exiles. And at times we've missed what's before and after. And that's the beauty of the letter. So my my calling attention to that verse was to to let us know that, one, it is written to people who are in exile, people who, some of them were following Torah. They were devout to God. And they are now in exile. And they're going to die in exile. They are not coming home. I would say everybody who understood that letter, probably age, what, 15 and up, they're going to be there 70 years. They're not coming home. And God says, I know you're in exile, but I'm still in charge. I want you to live your life. I want you to plant a vineyard. Somebody tells you plant a vineyard, you're going to be there a while because they don't grow quick. I want you to marry. I want you to be the light to the world that I've asked you to be in your homeland. You weren't. So be that light in this community and pray for that community, that city, that it will be blessed, because if that city's blessed, you'll be blessed. There's tremendous faith and faithfulness of God, his comfort, his care. And and when he says, pray for the city, sounds something like Peter said, right? Pray for your rulers. Why? That you could lead a quiet and peaceful life. Pretty much what Jeremiah says. So the comfort we take is if we feel like we're in exile, however we define exile, God says, I'm not abandoning you. You may die there, yes, as an individual. But I am still faithful. You be the light where you are, and I will be faithful. So it's it's a tremendous message of hope, and, and that's what I want us to see by seeing the whole passage in that and just recognizing that we need to see there are plural views in Scripture and recognize What what can we learn from that? Is there an individual relationship with God? Yes. We're not saying that everything in Scripture is collectivist and there's nothing for the individual. What does God say? God says you are more valuable than the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. When we talked about God as being our patron, that's very individual. A benefactor benefited everybody, but God as my patron is my individual patron. He says, I will be faithful, and that's what Paul says. I know whom I have believed. He will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's his statement of faith in God as patron. So tonight we're going to look more at Hebrew thought. So probably think a little more Old Testament. We're going to be kind of leaning Old Testament, uh, but not excluding New Testament, and simply because... Old Testament's more Hebrew language. Uh, It's written in Hebrew, New Testament more Greek. So we're thinking more um, Old Testament, but certainly applies a lot of this applies New Testament and how um, Jews at the time of Jesus would be thinking also. Some of the characteristics of Hebrew thought is it is more concrete than abstract. We are very abstract. We think in abstract terms. We're a lot up here. The Hebrew language is more sensing language. It is more active language. It uses sometimes fewer words to express more thoughts. Uh, It is is more um, earthy, to to try and use that term. Uh, Their view of time is very different from our time. So we're going to try to look at a few things here. So when we think of time, we think of time more as when we're driving a car. So if I'm driving a car and I'm thinking of time, what's in front of me? Friend? The future. You've got a bright future ahead. We we just think that's how we think. That's how we see time. So where am I sitting in the car? What's that? That's the present. What's behind me? The past. Yeah. So we look at time, in essence, in a linear fashion in that way. Is everybody comfortable with that? Everybody look forward to the future? Not everybody looks at time that way. For the Hebrew, it's more like rowing a boat. If I'm rowing a boat, what is in front of me? I knew somebody was gonna to have to be saying that. I was hoping somebody wouldn't. I won't shame that person. But in thinking of time, staying on topic, if I'm in a rowboat, what is, behind, what is in front of me? The past. What is behind me? The future. So, why is that? Well, let's think about that. Can I see the past? Yeah. It's already happened. It's complete. It's not going to change. It is fixed, but it is right in front of me to view. Can I see the future? No. It is behind me, it is incomplete. So as the Hebrews view time, they are in essence viewing time a little bit more from a complete, incomplete viewpoint. So I view that which is behind, in front of me as being something that is known. And I look at that and I go, well, it kind of makes sense. Uh, For us to say we're looking forward to the future when I can't see it, well, I'm missing all my lessons from the past that way. But also, if we think of God, we, we try to put God in this linear time framework that we have. And they're putting God in a time, in a framework that is more just complete and incomplete. And God can see over my head. He can see what is behind me. So it reframes that, that um, God and time standpoint. Again, we view it linearly as moving toward an end, and we we have our timeline. Uh, the Hebrew time is more seen as a rhythm. Uh, at first I thought it was more circular, and it's it's really not circular. And and rhythm is probably the best word I could find that describes how they view time, possibly cyclical. Um, we have Evening and morning. We have six days and then the Sabbath. We have f- festival to festival. We have oh, springtime and harvest. Kind of a rhythm to how they view time. And as, as they celebrate Passover... They celebrate Passover as if they personally participated in it, as as if all of the community of Jews is celebrating it together. Uh, Because I'm seeing, I'm viewing it as, as being completed in the past there. We have a solar calendar. It is based on 12 months. Uh, with a leap day thrown in every now and then and a new day begins at midnight how do I know when midnight gets here I have to look at my watch I'm forced into some kind of external device I can't go outside look up and say midnight I have to have this device Hebrew is on a lunar calendar The cycles of the moon. Again, it's a cycle, right? We go from new moon, the quarters, full moon, back to new moon. Can I know when there's a new moon? Yeah, I can go out and observe that. Started in the evening, wait all night, no moon. The day before, what do we have? We've got just that little sliver. The day after, what do we have? We've got that little sliver. Now can I tell when it's a full moon? That one's harder. The day before full moon, the day after full moon, they they look pretty close. So the Jewish calendar starts each month on the new moon because they can tell when that new moon happens. It's astrologically observable. The day begins at sunset little debate there is it sun setting or is it dark some will say it's sun setting some will say three stars when there's three stars that's considered dark that's the new day I think and I go gee I don't like midnight because well I can't tell when it's midnight but I don't know why would I start a new day at night I would think sun up would be a nice time to start a new day so why did you Jews start their day at night? Well, we go back to Torah, right? Go back to Genesis. What does Genesis say? There was what? Evening and morning, first day. Evening and morning, second day. That's where they get It's right from Genesis. Well, God said that's when the new day starts. In the evening, in sunset. So again, as we look at time, we see how we, we feel that time kind of is marching on. For them, it is more of a cycle, more of a, a rhythm with time, more in tune with what you can see and observe, whereas we're, we're needing the watch. We're needing some kind of mechanical device. So again, concrete versus abstract. Again, when we think about, when we do want to describe God, we will use terms like God is omniscient, God is love, God is omnipotent. Those are what, abstract terms. Can I touch love? No. Can I touch omniscience? No. They're all terms up here in our head. They are ideas. For the Hebrew, they're going to use terms that are more concrete. God is my rock. God is my fortress. God is compared to eagle's wings. Can I touch a rock? I can touch a rock. Now, what does it mean that God is a rock? Well, we could go a long time on that, couldn't we? He's faithful. He's strong. The rock here is more of a high point. What is a high point? A place of refuge. In a battle, what position do you want? The high point. It's easier to defend. So, whereas our terms are fairly specific, aren't they? What is omniscient? We have one definition for that. Omniscient means all-knowing. So, when we our, our, our language, we have to have more words to describe, in essence, the same thing. Whereas in, in describing God as a fortress, we now can take on very many nuanced meanings for that. So earlier, when we said that the Hebrew uses fewer words to describe more things, that's really what I'm trying to say: is that their words. Um, are able to allow us to discuss and say, okay, what what does it mean that God is my fortress? How does that play out? We tend to express statements with abstract terms. Our sentence structure is normally noun-based. We have a noun, then we have a verb. We learned that in our English class. So we will say... um, Uh, And then we have our adjectives that describe the noun from the perspective of itself. So the desk is square. So how am I describing the desk? From the relationship of the desk. The desk is square. It's three feet high. That's that's how, if I I were to ask you to describe your house, I would say I've got a cream-colored stucco, ranch style with a green gate out front all nouns with adjectives. We would say what? God is love. The Hebrew tend to express statements that engage the senses. And their sentence structure typically starts with the verb first and then the noun. And then a noun is described from the perspective of me, the person. So if I'm describing a desk, the desk is what I use to write on. If I'm describing God as being love, God is loving to me. Notice the action involved. We say God is love. Hebrews is going to say God is loving to me. Ours again, more in the head, there's more action based. I'm describing God's action to me. So it is a it is a language based on action. Just as an example, Psalm 98.2. For us, the Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. We're comfortable with that sentence structure. Um, the Lord, the noun, has made the verb. If we look at it in the original Hebrew, kind of translating it back, has made known the Lord his salvation in the sight of the heathen, has openly shown his righteousness. What is first in the sentence The verb, then the noun. Why? Because theirs is a language of action and in a language of action the verbs take precedence. Let's move from time and kind of language to direction. Uh, We express direction how? Just north, south, east, west. Here in the springs, we may can get a little more concrete. Head toward the mountain, (laughs) head away from the mountain. You know, when you get on Woodman Road, you want to come to my house, head away from the mountains. If you're unsure of when I say east, that's what it means. Genesis 11. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot was separated from him, "'Lift up your eyes.'" and look to the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Again, in Genesis, talking about Abraham, we see the terms west, east, north, and south. Well, that's like we do, right? No, not quite. In Hebrew, if we look at the first verse in Genesis, he's actually telling him to look to the hidden dark. Again, take the first verse in Genesis. Then he's to look to the Negev. Then he's to look to the front, or to the rising sun. And then he's to look to the sea. Those are earth terms, right? Those you can see, those you can touch. But they don't make sense to us. If we had read this verse in Hebrew, and he says, he took him to a place where the are hidden dark, Negev, to the front, the sea. Well, we need to know a little bit then maybe about Israel's geography. So we have a map of Israel here. If I am looking to the rising sun, what direction am I looking? I am looking east. That is to the front. It's in front of me. If I'm in Israel, I am looking to the front. What is behind me? Mediterranean Sea and that's what West means in the, in the scripture when you you look through all of uh, the descriptions of West it is always the sea, the Mediterranean Sea so again I'm looking east what is to the south the Negev the desert area what is to the north would been, they called it the hidden or the dark area so For them, direction is based on geography, not your ordinal northeast, southwest. So anytime you see south in the Old Testament, the actual Hebrew word is Negev. Imagine now, you know, again, I kind of think of the difficulty of translating that because Negev to us has no meaning. It's not to ourselves, but to them it was. So function versus appearance. We've kind of talked about this. We typically talk about how something looks. Again, the, the chairs are green. Whereas in the Hebrew, it is more of its function. So if I were to ask you to describe the ark what would we say? Probably say a boat. Then we get a little fuzzy, but we we would describe the picture that comes to our mind, a barge, square, big square box. We would be describing how it looks. How does the Bible describe the ark? Make for yourself an ark of Cypress word. Make rooms in it. Coat it. This is how you were to build it. The ark is to have 350, 30 high. Make a roof, leaving below the roof an opening. Put a door and make lower, middle, and upper decks. How is the ark described? With verbs. It's all action. Nowhere do we get a picture of the ark. We just have a couple of measurements, but it, make a roof. Well, roof, roof, roof. It's not described. Again, just showing how the Hebrew language is more action-oriented, more functionally how it works. We see emotions expressed through word pictures predominantly. In Psalms, what do we get? You go out in joy, led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst in song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Is that literal? No, trees don't have hands. But what do we get with our picture? we get another expression of what joy is, that the mountains are singing, the trees are clapping. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Again, especially in the Psalms, we have all these word pictures that describe emotions. We would say, be joyful. The Hebrew is going to say, let the mountains sing. Let the trees clap. So here, a couple of exa- an example of concrete. Remember the battle with Moses? Moses held up his hands. Israel prevailed, lowers his hands. Amalek prevailed. So what do they do? They get a stone, put it under Moses' arms, and they help hold his arms up. And what does it say? That his hands remained steady until the sun went down. Why did they remain steady? They were sitting on some stones. In Psalm 89, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. We go faithfulness. That's kind of an abstract term. However, in Hebrew, the word used for Moses with his arms on the rock remaining steady is the same word used for God's faithfulness. So what I see with that is now I take my understanding of faithfulness and I can now apply this picture of Moses and his hands remaining steady and understand that's what God is saying as, how, as far as how he is faithful. It adds a word picture to us. So when we read through the Old Testament and you see words like mercy and loving kindness, things that we view as abstract. There is a concrete word or picture behind it. Um, A lot of times mercy is the bowing of a head. Uh, Phil's talked earlier how anger is what? Flaring of the nostrils. So when it says God is slow to anger, that's abstract. That's so we can understand it. We probably aren't going to come up to our spouse and say, Honey, I think you're flaring your nose a little bit. You know, I think my nose is going to get more than flared if I say that. But that's the the image behind it. And again, it's not like the Hebrews didn't think abstractly. They just communicated it in concrete terms. It's not like we don't think concretely. We just tend to, most of the time, communicate in abstract terms. We get to a kind of an important point here. So again, our culture is Greek in nature, Western in nature. We have been hugely influenced by Greek thought, starting with Plato. We have been influenced, our culture has been influenced by Darwin, with Darwinism. Culture is influenced by Bacon, with scientific method, by the Enlightenment, with the age of reason and how logic is kind of what prevails. That's just where we come from. We don't think about it. It's the water we swim in. And that's just where where we are. It is not right or wrong. Plato um, introduced that the world is really visible and invisible. And Plato introduced the concept of dualism. So you have these two separate parts. And really, reality is in the form of your ideas, not so much in the material world. It's your thought about the table, not so much the table. So we're seeing logic move up to the head now and away from the material universe. We're seeing things in a dichotomy, an either-or. And for Plato, the invisible was superior to the visible. So when we think about um, our bodies, we have a physical body that is inferior to the soul. This dichotomy that we have here. And that concept is extremely strong in our culture today. Uh, We are we are reaping what has been sown here and within our culture today. Because now we have uh, the concept that my body, though my body is human, uh, what I think is matters. Uh, let, me, let me go here first. The Hebrew is more holistic. The universe is a whole, visible and invisible, operate together. Uh, body and soul are indivisible. It's, it's a whole unit. And there's no real separation between religious and secular. The impact on our culture is we, uh, we're familiar with Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Well, no. What does that do? That says that my ability to think is what makes me a person. And what's that done for our culture today? That is now saying that, well, if you can't think, you're really not a person. If you're not a person, you're not afforded the rights of a person. Now, you may be a human, you may possess human DNA, but until you can think, you don't deserve the rights. Why is abortion easy for some? Because they make that separation. The human body is just just a bunch of cells. You have to think before you can be a person. You have to have an awareness of self in order to be a person. So that's why we have these personhood debates. It's not 7.30 yet. And I'm not, you know, we don't have the time in this class to go through what's going on with our culture, but that's a lot of what we're seeing is Greek dualism manifesting itself in uh, in personhood versus human that separation Carl real quick that's that's true that's that's a little more on in the individualistic sense but what we're talking about here from a dualistic sense is that Only people who have a self-awareness understand themselves to be a person can be a person. And and let's think about the consequences of that. That says what? A fetus doesn't think, obviously, so therefore that's not a person. Well, what about a three-month-old? Three-month-olds have self-awareness? No. What does that mean? Well, why, why should we afford them the right to life? What about someone who is aged, and now don't have all the mental functions. That's our euthanasia debate. It is all related to Greek dualism and the separation of visible and invisible, the separation of body and soul, that we now have two different things. That's, that is the debate and the challenge in our culture right now. We also are familiar with asceticism, the denial of pleasure. That somehow that is more holy to deny yourself. And we have uh, religious bodies that what? Practice celibacy, why? I need to deny marriage. I need to deny myself certain foods or drinks and that makes me more holy. Why? Because well, the material is evil, The invisible is good. The spiritual is good. We have that dichotomy. The Hebrew treats soul and body as a whole, as one. There is no dichotomy. There's no separation between body and soul. Look at what uh, we see in Psalms. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Both of those are parallel statements saying the same thing. It's not my soul thirsts for you and my body's just got to tag along. Again in Psalm, for our souls have sunk down in the dust, our bodies cling to the earth. There's no separation in the Hebrew mind between the two. So in that sense, what Scripture is saying is very much against the culture that we're currently living in. Paul says what when in regards to asceticism, the removal of pleasure? Paul says what? Hey, there are times when people are going to fall away and they're going to teach the wrong thing what is the wrong thing they're teaching they forbid marriage they want to teach you to abstain from foods what has God said everything created by God is good if it is received with gratitude there's that patronage term a little bit right what is the what is the role of the client showing gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. There's, God says, no, this, this is for you to enjoy. I encourage marriage. I encourage you enjoying things. All is good. So let's make a couple of more examples of, of a little bit of dualism here for prayer. sake. Let me go back. How do we typically pray? We typically pray with what? Eyes closed, head bowed. It's reverent. Why do we close our eyes? We want to get rid of the distractions around us because we want to be more, think more spiritual and remove those distractions of the material world. And what have we just kind of done? We've kind of fallen into that dualism. Now, that's not what we're intentionally doing. I'm not saying that. But that's kind of what led to it, is the thinking that the material world needs to be shut off so I can think more spiritually. Carl? Have you, have you with the first time someone said let's just pray with our eyes so to me it, like- oh, right. it, it Yeah, so... So how how do the Hebrews pray? Normally, eyes open, hands raised, looking up to God. We see this. Is that the only way? No, I'm not saying that's the only way. We see Jesus in the garden. What? He's he's down on his face. But we do see a posture here where Jesus, they took away the stone. Again, Lazarus. Jesus looked up and said, Father. Again, he would have had his hands raised. He would have looked up. Why? Why? So I can see the material universe because God has blessed it. Because I can be reminded of what God has done. I'm not shutting off the material world to become more spiritual. I'm seeing that it is all spiritual and that it is all good. So I'm not challenging us to to change the way we pray, but possibly to consider maybe occasionally we do. We pray for God to bless our food to the nourishment of our bodies. Uh, to, excuse me? And our bodies to thy service. You got the Say it one more time. I'm just deaf. We pray for God to bless our food and the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to thy service is the way we use. Yes. And let's think, why do we pray God to bless this food? Because we want this food to be a little more set apart. But to the Hebrew, the Hebrew is going to bless God. The Hebrew prayer is, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who brought forth this bread from the earth. And see, the action-oriented. So we're asking God to bless the food. The Hebrews asking God is blessing God for providing the food because to the Hebrew it's already blessed. And why do they bless God? Because of what Moses said. Again, we go back to Torah. What did Moses say? Moses said, so when, you, when you're entering the land, you will eat and be satisfied and you will bless Adonai, your God, for the good land he has given you. So why do the Hebrews bless God? Because Moses said, bless God for what he's done for you. So for the Hebrew, it is a continual blessing of God throughout the day. They rise in the morning and they bless God for the air that they're now breathing and for the chance of a new day we know the hebrew prayer that for when they go to the restroom there's a blessing of god for my orifices that they are not too open and not too closed and coming back from guatemala i understand that we we wanted that blessing so for them it was it was all day of blessing god for what he has provided and that's why it's easy for paul to say what pray without ceasing that was their that was their world. wasn't long prayers. It was short prayers of blessing God. Am I saying we should no longer ask God to bless our food? No, not saying that. That's our culture. I am saying that should we incorporate blessing God? Probably so. I'm picking on a lot of stuff, aren't I? Worship. We tend to view worship How? as an event at a certain place, look on our website. When do we worship? Sunday, 10 o'clock. Monday at 9.30? Probably not. We worship Sunday at 10 o'clock. Because we, we do separate religious from secular. We have our secular job. We have clergy and laity. We minister and member. There's this separation. It, it, it goes back to some of that Greek dualism. For the Hebrew, their thought all of life is worship. There is no time I'm not worshiping. All of life is, is within worship. There is no religious, there is no secular, it's it's life. When uh, last week in Guatemala I talked to some of the Guatemalans. And, and I asked them, hey, "Could describe God for me. The question was hard to convince because that's not a question I think about. But their response was, God is uh, my father. God is creator. Those were the two consistent, two words that were used. Notice the personal relationship. That God is, God is father. He walks with me. And for them, this is very true for them. They see life, it's life. There's not a coming to church to worship. God is with me through the week. He guides me through the week, very personal. And and there is no separation between a time of worship and a time of living. It it is just one whole. And and as Kimmel and I were talking, it's like we probably could, could learn some from that. We see religion typically as a code of conduct, a set of ethics, a creed. We have religious, we have our Christian creeds, the Nicene Creed, and certain churches have their creeds. And in order to be a member of that church, you have to affirm those set of beliefs. But to the Hebrew, all of life is considered religion, there is no separation. And what is life? typically related to it's typically related to a journey or a way just looking through the Old Testament Enoch and Noah what walked with God in Psalms for Adonai watches over the way of the righteous the way of the wicked is doomed Psalm again guide me on the path of your mitzvah your commands your laws for I take pleasure in it Micah 6, human being, you have already been told what is good, what Adonai demands of you, no more than to act justly, love, grace, and to what? Walk in purity with your God. Jesus in Matthew says, there's a broad way and a narrow way. Jesus says, I am the way. What is the first name given to the church in Acts? The way. So what we learn from this is perhaps that instead of viewing life as religious and secular, we view it more as a whole and more as a path, a journey in which God is with us. Uh, so in summary, we see concrete basis to the abstract terms in Scripture. can help us add color and emotions to the words. We need to be aware of the impact of Greek dualism on our culture and how it can impact the reading of Scripture and how we interpret scripture. And maybe we have the challenge to learn to live life as a journey, a holistic body and mind walking with God. I think that's, again, that's a beautiful picture that the Hebrew thought gives to us, uh, that challenges us. So a final thought. We're right at the time, so just take a minute here. Um, Last week was Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish calendar. That means head of the year. Uh, It's the beginning of the Jewish civil year. In Leviticus 23, it's called the Feast of Trumpets because they would blow a trumpet on that day. And in Leviticus, it is the first day of the seventh month. Now, those of you who are good at math probably go, wait a minute. How can Rosh Hashanah be the first day of the year? Feast of Trumpets, same day, be the first day of the seventh month. Seventh month doesn't sound like the first day of the year. Well, there there are two calendars for the Jews. There is the civil calendar. Rosh Hashanah started last week. That's when they count their years. So they increment the year for us 2020, 2021. Sorry, I didn't increment very well. We do that on January 1st. That's when we increment the year count. They do it last week. But in Exodus, Exodus, God says what? God says at Passover I'm setting up a new calendar for you. Nisan, the month of Nisan when Passover occurred is going to be your new first month of the year. So Tishra the month we're in now is the seventh month from the Exodus calendar. The festival calendar, the religious calendar. So that's why we see the two calendars within the Jewish world. Today Is Yom Kippur. Right now we are in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The sun is set. So, Jewish calendar, we are now on the 10th day of the seventh month. It is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. Leviticus 16 outlines the details. It is a Sabbath day of rest. And if you work on the Sabbath, the punishment was extreme. It is also a day of fasting. It's the only festival that fasting was required. God says you were to afflict your souls on this day. It wasn't given. Various traditions have arisen as to what that actually means. You'll see various practices about what afflicting your soul means. But it's a Sabbath day of rest. So even though tomorrow, for us, Thursday, it's still considered a Sabbath day with no work. It is a day of fasting. What happened on the Day of Atonement? The high priest dressed uh, first. The high priest would immerse himself, baptize himself basically, to purify himself. Put on a white linen robe, not his normal colorful robes. He would take a bowl And offer that bull as a sacrifice for his sins. Two goats would be chosen. Lots would be cast. One goat is for the Lord, one goat is for the people. The high priest would offer up incense, a sweet smell to God. He'd take the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat that was for the Lord, into where? The Holy of Holies. Seven times sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat. Seven times sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. No one else was to be in the tabernacle. Would then come out, place his hands on the other goat, put all the sins of Israel, all the sins of the people on that goat. And that goat would then be taken out into the wilderness. Kind of as far as the east from the west. Right person coming back would have to immerse themselves to purify themselves. That is what we 're in right now is this Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, and it's a shame that that we have kind of lost our Jewish roots to we, if not for me saying this tonight, we may have gone through tomorrow, not even known it unless we have a Jewish friend or unless something popped up somewhere and we were made aware of it. And what is it for us? Well, we recognize for us, what is it? It's Jesus. As He is our atoning sacrifice. What does Hebrews say? He doesn't have to go in and out like the high priest anymore. He has atoned once and for all. I just wish we maybe were more in tune with the Jewish calendar that we could honor the roots of what Jesus' sacrifice came from. So my encouragement is not that we fast all day tomorrow, but maybe we do spend time in Leviticus 16 and 23 and honor the heritage, we'd spend time maybe in Hebrews, we spend some time blessing God for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that we don't rely on the blood of bulls and goats anymore. So that's a part of, of what we see when we look at our Jewish roots. We see how God for thousands of years set the stage the atoning sacrifice of Jesus so with that I appreciate your coming we'll talk more on it next week hey I'm Eddie White the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.